Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis. This is the first book of the Bible. Uh, Genesis chapter 50, the last chapter in the first book. And I do know we have some folks still trying to come in, and so there are some seats. If you don't mind, if you're in an inn and there's some empty seats, if you wouldn't kind of squeeze in and really get to know your neighbor a little bit better. So uh, it would be really, really a blessing to us. Genesis chapter 50, and we're going to begin in verse 15. Let's stand as we read God's word. Genesis 50 and verse 15. If you don't have a Bible, there's one available for you on the screen behind me. Genesis 50 and verse 15. The Holy Spirit says through Moses, Now when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sins because they did evil to you. Now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And so Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. You may be seated. So how has your week been? <laughs> my, my week included me and 52 others in another country where war broke out. Missiles were flying, and all of us were trying to find a way out before it was too late. When we arrived last Tuesday in Israel, we never would have dreamed that a week later we would be praying and hoping that we could get out. On Saturday, we heard the news, a domino effect of multiple flights being canceled. Speaking, I was on the phone quite a bit with various congressmen and chiefs of staff with the State Department and other places, and they were telling us that there's a threat on the airport, there's a threat that the Jordanian border, which is really the only border you could cross, is going to be closed. And while this is going on, there are air sirens and missiles and bombs and shooting and people on gliders. It was an interesting week. After hours of working through options, talking to multiple people, we came up with three options to get out of the country. Option one was to use our original flight, which was Thursday. That's 72, 96 hours of waiting. Option two was to charter a flight to Cyprus. Option three was to drive to the Jordanian border where I have contacts in Jordan to get us out into Amman and fly home. And here's what I want you to understand. The good news is that by God's grace, we got out and got home. <laughs> Amen. 
So as we were, as we were driving in the bus with the group in, in, in tow to the church, I got on the speaker and I said, listen, thank you guys for going on this trip. I just want you to know that according to our itinerary, we're only arriving to the church three hours later than I expected. <laughs> only God. Literally, folks, only God. There are people in Israel right now who are stuck. The State Department is finally, finally getting into gear. There are people, though, that are going to be there and live there, and they're going to live this nightmare, and we need to pray for them. But as I look back on this trip, that I actually, this is the first time I took April to Israel <laughs> and my family. As I look back at this trip, as unnerving as certain moments of the trip was and were, this was the greatest trip I've ever been on. Now, during those moments of difficulty, during those moments of uncertainty, those 72, 96 hours, I, as I reflect now on the other side, I, I want to be honest with you. I'm going to cherish those 72 to 96 hours for the rest of my life because it's in those moments that God taught me to trust him more. Amen. See, I, I don't know what you are going through. I don't know what's happening in your life. And, and I want you to understand that what we went through is pales in comparison to what others have gone through and what others are going through. But let me tell you something. Do not waste the crisis. But allow God to speak to you through it. That's a theme that we've picked up on as we studied the life of Joseph is we've seen that God was going to use one young man to save his family and ultimately point us to the one who will save the world. If you're new here, if this is your first time, we've been talking about this big theological word called providence. And what we believe the Bible teaches is what's called the providence of God. And providence is, is really defined as God, our heavenly father, who is working in and through all things by his wisdom and power for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Pastor Thomas did such an incredible job last Sunday, did he not? Preaching and teaching God's word. Hearing and reminding us that even in the moment of revenge, God's providence shines. And we looked at questions in this series. Question number one is this, is that how would your life be if you truly believe that God's dream for your life is better than your dream for your life? Question two we examined was this, what would your life be like if you believe that God's plan for your life is better than your plan for your life and that God's timing is better than your timing? Question three we asked is this, what would your life look like if you truly believed that God was with you and for you? Would it change how you lived your daily lives? So today's question is this, what would your life look like if you truly believe that God has got your future secure? Would that help you with your struggle and anxiety? Would that calm your fears? What we're going to learn today is this, is that the story of Joseph calls us to trust that God's got this because of his good, because his good providence guarantees his promises. Let's unpack that. Number one, God's promises. In verse 15, we see here that Joseph's father, Jacob, is dead. In verse number one, it reads that Joseph 
fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph was allowed to spend 17 years with his dad in Egypt. God fulfilled the promise that he made to Jacob that Joseph would close his eyes in death. The story of the book of Genesis is a story of God making promises and then God keeping those promises. What makes Genesis so pivotal is that in the midst of dysfunction, God still functions. That in the midst of faithlessness, God is still faithful, that God keeps his promises. And it is a story filled with promises. As you begin in verse chapter three, verse 15, after Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God, God could have easily zapped them into oblivion or turned them into crispy critters. But instead, he gave them a promise. The promise is, is that there's coming one who will reverse the curse and crush the head of Satan. Later on, as you fast forward to chapter 12, God is going to choose a family who was worshiping the moon in the Ur of the Chaldees, a man by the name of Abraham. He's going to call him in a vision and make him precious promises to bless Abraham, to bless those who bless him, to curse those who curse him. And from Abraham and from his family line would all the nations of the earth be blessed. That promise that God gave to Abraham was passed to his son Isaac. And Isaac passed that promise on to Jacob. And the one thing you'll notice is that the patriarchs died, but the promise didn't. As Jacob was dying, he blesses Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And here's what Jacob says is a blessing over them. In verse chapter 8, 48, verse 15, he says that he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys and in them let my name be carried on. As Jacob was dying, he was confident in the future promises of God because he had experienced the fulfillment of God's promises in his life. He was saying to his sons and his grandsons that God has been faithful then, he's gonna be faithful now, and he's gonna be faithful forever. Jacob recounted to Joseph and his grandsons the faithfulness of God in shepherding him all the days of his life. This is the first biblical reference is God is your shepherd. He says, not only did God shepherd me, but he shepherded my dad and he shepherded my granddad. And the same God who guided me, son, is the same God who's going to guide you. See, that was Jacob's family history. Now again, Jacob's family put the fun in dysfunctional. They were a mess, but God was still functioning. That the story of Jacob's family was a story of even though they have failed God, God never failed them. That God is a promise maker and he's a promise keeper. Joseph or Jacob could have looked at his sons and his family and said, all my life you have been faithful. All my life, you've been so, so good. See, Jacob knew that God, who made a promise to his granddad, made a promise to him. And it was that promise in which Jacob risked and staked his entire life on. It was his legacy. It was his history. It was his family's history. Emory University, which is in Atlanta, did a study of, of children and they found that the best predictor of a child's emotional well-being, 
is not getting into a great school, not giving them lots of hugs and kisses and words of affirmation, the, uh, the, not taking your kids to Disney or buying them an iPhone or buying them whatever they want. Emory University found that the number one indicator of a child's emotional well-being is a child knowing their family history. You understand that everyone is born into someone else's story. April and I have a story and our kids were born into our story, whether good or bad. I was born into my parents' story. My parents were born into my grandparents' story. All of us have a family of origin and each and every one of us have an origin story. The Emory study concluded this, that when you tell your kids stories of your past and how you survived, it helps your kids have a better perspective on their future and how to live a more balanced life. You know, my kids have asked me over the years, Daddy, tell me a story when you were little. Tell me a story when you were our age. Tell me how you handled a situation. I mean, as we were in Israel last week, my kids like, hey, Daddy, what was it like when you were Israel, in Israel before? Kids love to hear the stories of their parents and grandparents. They love to hear how you survived. Listen, and one of the best things you can do for your kids is not to sugarcoat everything, but to tell them the truth and to say, look, mommy and daddy made mistakes, but look what God did. See, all of us have to be reminded that the God who got us here is the same God who's going to get us there. And that's why it's so important that we constantly preach the faithfulness of God into our lives. See, your family history matters. You were woven into a family history and your children are woven into that same family history. And listen, if you are a child of God, you have been woven into God's family and therefore God's family story is your family story. Do you understand that if you are a Christian, the scriptures are your script and the Bible is your backstory? That when we talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's your family history. The story of Joseph is our family story of how God is going to save the world and us from our brokenness through the life of our older brother, Jesus Christ. So all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus that he is a promise maker and he is a promise keeper. I, I heard this this week, that there are 352 quintillion gallons of water in all the oceans in the world. That's 352 with 18 zeros. It's bigger than the national debt, just barely. <laughs> That's a lot of water. Imagine all that water. Let me tell you something. There's a greater chance of the oceans going dry than God failing to keep one promise that he's made. Amen. He is a promise maker. He is a promise keeper. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. God's promises. But secondly, I want you to see God's good providence. And here's where we pick back up in the story. In verse 15, uh, Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. See, in their minds, it, Joseph was only being good to them because daddy was alive. Daddy loved his sons and Joseph's gonna be good because of daddy. But now that daddy's dead, here's Joseph's chance. They've now lived in Egypt for 17 years and they've lived under this fear and burden. 
praying for the day that when their daddy dies, that Joseph won't get revenge. And so in verse 16, they send Joseph a text message. Now, it was on an iPhone because they had enough sense. They didn't want it to get lost with a green bubble. So they send Joseph a text and say, hey, listen, daddy said before he died, for you not to kill us, for you not to have revenge on us, for you not to pay us back for the evil that we did to you. So because daddy said that, we're also saying, hey, Joseph, would you please forgive us? And would you please not have revenge on us? And would you please God, or, not, or Joseph, would you please just forgive us of the evil that we did to you? Now, the one thing that I think is important is that they did note that what they did was evil, but here's, the, they, they don't trust Joseph. And the Bible says that Joseph wept because of their distrust. And Joseph looks at him in verse 19 and he says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Joseph in this moment refused to sit in God's seat of judgment over his brothers. He refused to take revenge. He refused to hold a grudge because he understood that that was not his place, nor was it his responsibility. Joseph knew that only God had the knowledge, power, and wisdom to sit in judgment over his brothers. And so he looks at them and he says, listen, as for you, you meant evil against me. Joseph doesn't sugarcoat it. Joseph doesn't tone it down. He says, what you did was pure evil. What you did was wrong. He doesn't downplay what his brothers did to him. But he also doesn't play the victim card. Because he says, God meant it for good. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. God had a bigger purpose and a bigger picture in the pain. And so Joseph refused to sit in God's seat of judgment but he did choose to sit in God's seat of perspective. See, normally when we're going through things, we live life in the valley. And so from the valley, you only see things from a certain perspective. You see a valley perspective. But when you're up on the mountain, you see that what looked to be one thing from a, deep, from a bigger perspective is something bigger. And so Joseph refused to take his view from the valley, but yet he took his view from the mountain from God's perspective. You know, from our perspective, we see coincidence happenstance, and accidents. Just this week in Israel, we were, we were with somebody, another Christian, and here's what he just said it out of the blue. He says, with God, there are no coincidences, only providence. Do you understand that nothing the brothers did or nothing that Mrs. Potiphar did or the butler and the baker did or Pharaoh did, none, none of that was a coincidence. Sometimes we read this verse and we think we'll translate it. Maybe you've probably maybe heard this verse before. You meant it for evil. God turned it for good. Sometimes that's how we paraphrase it, but that's a terrible translation of that. It's not that God, it's not that somebody did evil and then God turned the evil to good. No, 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 no. It's not that they were going this way and God made it go that way. No, 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 no. They were going like this. The meant here wasn't that God responded or reacted to the sinful decisions of the brothers, but that he actually used the sinful decisions and actions of the brothers for God's good and Joseph, or for Joseph's good and God's glory. Now that might be a little scary to you, but I want you to understand that God does not cause evil to happen, but he overrules evil so that evil destroys itself to bring about its good purposes. Theologians call this compatibilism. 
Now, let me just kind of get it where you and I live. Often when, if we're honest, y'all want to be honest this morning? Y'all keep up the facade, okay? So, when things are happening that are good, we say God is good. When things are happening that are not good in our lives, we say, well, maybe, not God, maybe God's not that good. Or we'll say, maybe God's not in control. And what happens is, is that in our minds, it's an either or thing. Either God is good and life is good or God is not good and therefore life is not good or God is good, but he's not in control of everything. So that's why bad stuff's happening. And that is not in the Bible. The Bible is not either or. The Bible is not that way. The Bible is actually both and. See, the Bible says that this world is evil and there is suffering and there is pain. But it also says God is good and in full control. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And the good news is, is that God is working out everything for the ultimate ends of the glory of his name and the good of his people. That's providence. See, you have to understand that God is always working for good, even though in the moment it may not feel good. Sometimes we interpret God's silence to be God's absence. And sometimes we interpret God's hiddenness in the moment to be a sign of powerlessness. But I've learned in my life this, and you can see this bore out in the scriptures and in church history, that when things seem most wrong, that's when God is working the most. Now, how in the world could Joseph look at his brothers and say what you meant for evil, God meant for good? How could he learn that? You know how? He spent 13 years in the seminary of suffering and he got a theology degree. His undergrad, he got at Pitt University. <laughs> he got a master's degree in Potiphar's house and a doctorate in the prison. And in those moments of intense suffering, he refused to take the place of God, but he began to see the ways of God. And he saw and he learned in 13 years of suffering that God's plan was better than his plan. That God's dream was bigger than his dream. That God's timing was better than his timing. Because here's what you have to understand. Your theology grows deeper in times of pain and difficulty. Grace grows best in the winter. Robert Murray McShane said this. He says, we should spend more time reflecting on God's good purposes than on others' evil intentions. For every look at someone else's evil intentions, take 10 looks at God's providential purposes. Often when you've been hurt, when you've been mistreated, when you've been abused, you look at what others have done to you and you fail to see what God may actually be doing in that. See, Genesis 50, 20 is the Old Testament version of Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28 says this, for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for, for those who are called according to his. How many of y'all like that verse? Amen. I love that verse. You claim it. That's a name it and claim it, blab it and grab it verse. Amen. You put it on bumper stickers. You put it on coffee mugs. You run around with it. You say all things work together for good preacher. 
Because what happens is, is that this principle of God's providence is what we build our lives on when we cannot see or understand how God is ever going to work out good in the situation that we're in. But Romans 8.28 is a promise of God's providence. See, in Joseph's story, we see that God is apparent, apparently slow, but his apparent slowness was actually perfect timing. See, God is never working in just one thing in your life, but he's working in multiple things in your life to bring together good. You know, sometimes people, you know, even, even while we were at the, uh, with, with people in, in, in Israel, uh, I had some people that were not necessarily Christians say, well, you know, things are just gonna work out. Have you ever just said that? You know, listen, I, I trust things are just gonna work out. Well, let me tell you something. Things don't just work out. There's no such thing as just things just working out in and of their own selves. Things work out because God works them out. See, we have a God who is always working in a variety of circumstances through a variety of people to bring about his good purposes. As John Piper said, there are thousands of things that God is doing in your life and you may be only aware of two or three of them. See, what was God doing in this? The brothers meant it for evil. God meant it for good for this purpose to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as you guys are today. You know, often when terrible things happen in our lives, here's a question we ask. See if you've ever asked this question. God, why would you do this to me? Anybody ever asked that question? Or maybe you've asked this question. Why is this thing happening to me? And we think that when we're going through difficulty, we think it's all about us. But what if it's not actually about us at all? What if what we're going through is actually for the benefit of others? Do you understand that God is doing to you and doing for you so that he can work in you and through you for the glory of his name and the good of other people? Amen. See, God sees the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. And God always uses the best means to bring about the best ends. So instead of asking God, God, what is happening to me? Maybe we should ask, God, what are you going to do through me in this crisis? I bought y'all something in Israel. You want to see it? Let's see if I can get it here for you. It is, it is absolutely gorgeous, isn't it? Isn't that beautiful? This is a tapestry. You know what a tapestry is? You see the pretty flowers? Doesn't that look amazing? It's beautiful, right? You see the blues and the reds, and isn't that great? It's, oh no, this is a tapestry, right? On the back side, it looks like a mess, doesn't it? It looks terrible, right? But from my side, it looks beautiful. See, don't you see the beauty in this? It's hard to, isn't it, right? Until you see this side. See, from one side, all you see is the ugly. You say, how can this ever be beautiful? How can this ever do anything? Because a tapestry, if you only looked at the backside of a tapestry, you would think that the artist is not very artistic. But when you flip it over, you see the beauty even in the uncertainty of how it's going to come about. Do you understand that one day 
God is going to flip the script of history and you are gonna see that every strand in your life that you did not understand was a part of God's picture that he was weaving together for his glory and your good? We see God's promises. We see God's good providence. But I want you to see that God's got this. See, we can trust that God's got this because his providence guarantees his promises. In verse 22, Joseph is, is still in Egypt. The Bible says he's 110 years old. You know what that means? That he's lived 93 years of his life in Egypt. He came into Egypt when he was 17 and he died at 110. It's 93 years. In those 93 years, he saw his children, he saw his grandchildren, he saw his great-grandchildren. And the one thing I love about Joseph is he did not die a bitter old man. He says to his family, I'm about to die. He knew he was dying. And so before he was dying, his last words to his family was to remind them and reassure them of God's promises and God's providence. He says to his family, he says, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, Joseph says, listen, we're here in Egypt. I've been in here 93 years, but this is not the end. God's got plans that are bigger and better, and he is not going to abandon you, and he's not going to forget his promises to you, but he's going to one day bring you out to bring you in to what he has promised for you. As a matter of fact, this promise, we don't have time to get into it, but in Genesis chapter 15, when God made promises to Abraham, he actually told Abraham that his descendants were going to go to a foreign country for four generations and that he would get them out. It happened. And so Joseph said, listen, I want to remind you of the promises that we're not going to stay in Egypt forever. We're not going to be Egyptian. God's got a way. He's going to deliver us. He's going to get us out. And so he says to everybody, he says, hey, I need y'all to swear to me something. I said, what do you need, Joseph? I want you to swear to me that when y'all leave, that you carry my bones out of here because I don't want to stay in Egypt. I want you to take me to the promised land. I want to be buried in Kentucky. I don't want to be buried in Florida, amen? <laughs> that when y'all get out, y'all get me, you all take me with you. And what Joseph was saying is this, it's the same God who got us here is the same God who's going to take us there. And what Joseph was speaking into his family was faith. You know, the best thing that you can do, mom and dad, is to not get your kids in an Ivy League college, to not get your kids an athletic scholarship, to not make your kids to where they feel like that the only way they succeed is if they live, that you can live vicariously through them to fulfill the dreams that you have for yourself. The best thing you can do for your family is to show them and give them a legacy of faith in Jesus Christ. And faith is believing in what you cannot see. Joseph was stuck in Egypt for 93 years and he gives this promise at his age of 110 and guess what's gonna happen? The people of God are gonna be in Egypt for 450 years and they're gonna suffer and they're gonna be in bondage. 
And the book of Genesis was written by Moses as they had gotten out of Egypt and it was written to the people of God to remind them of the promises of God based on the providence of God that God will do exactly what he says he's going to do. He's faithful then, he'll be faithful forever. And what was he saying? Joseph said that even though I'm dying, God is gonna visit you. He's made a promise. God is going to come. He's not gonna send an angel or a seraph. He's gonna come himself. And when he comes, he's gonna bring blessings. And you may not see it now, you may not see it in your lifetime, but you can rest assured that blessing is coming. So don't stop believing. Keep trusting. Keep holding to the promises of God that there is coming a day of full and final deliverance. God will surely visit you. And the last words of Joseph in the Bible are the last words of Jesus in the Bible. In Revelation 22, Jesus said, surely I am coming soon. See, the story of Joseph is not about Joseph. It's not about you. It's about one who is greater than Joseph and greater than you, who is the only one who can deliver you from your sins. See, Jesus was the object of his father's love, but was hated by his family, stripped of his robe, sold out for pieces of silver, falsely accused, faithful in temptation, thrown into a prison, stood before rulers. His wisdom was acknowledged by everyone. He saved his brothers from death, gave the hungry bread, and is exalted after and through his humiliation. And one day, every knee will bow in heaven and earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what humanity and Satan meant for evil to crucify Christ, God meant for good. See, the enemy thought he won. But that was just the beginning of the end. God on that cross allowed his son to be crushed to be humiliated, to save us from our sins, to save us from the fear of death, and to secure our future. You say, Pastor, that was good for Joseph then. How do I hack it today? Is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof that God's good providence guarantees God's good promises. And that you can trust that God's got it. Because if Jesus can save you from hell, he can save you from anything else. For 72 to 96 hours, we waited. Spent sleepless nights on the phone, travel agents, congressmen, reporters. The reason for doing the media was if we got stuck, I would at least they'd know who we were. For the people who were on that trip and they would testify because they've testified already of this that 
even in the midst of the air raid sirens and going into shelters and hearing the booms and the gunfire, there was an amazing sense of calm. There was an amazing sense of peace. Part of that is I believe it's the prayers of you all. Thank you so much for praying for us. And so the, the thought of the people was, is that God's got this. So I was on the balcony on one night, it's talking to a reporter with NBC or one of the, somebody, I was talking to somebody in the alphabet, okay? <laughs> Can't remember who. And there was an amazing sense of calm and I was sharing with them, telling what's going on and the reporter said, they said, how can you be so calm? How can your group be so calm when all is going on around you? Here's what I said. I said, the reason why we have this peace is because we know Jesus and we know where we're going and there's not one molecule or missile that is outside of his sovereign control. It was not the iron dome that is protecting us. It is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ and his precious promises. We were, we, we were safe. You understand that you are immortal until God calls you home. That if you are his child, no power of, no, 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 no scheme of man and no power in this world, nothing can destroy you. But I'll be honest with you, I don't think it was an accident God wanted me to teach this passage today. Because prior to coming on this trip, I studied this passage. While I was on this trip, I studied this passage. And while I was going through this situation, I was reminding myself of the truth of this passage, that I can trust that God's got this because of his precious providence, promises based on his good providence. And I had to remind myself that. And I don't know what you're going through. Maybe you have terminal cancer. Maybe you have a marriage that's falling apart. Maybe you have a family that has forsaken you. Maybe you have a financial crisis. Maybe you're fearful of losing your job. I don't know what kind of hell you're going through. But if you're a child of God, you need to understand this one thing. God's got it. What would your life look like if you truly believed that God has your future. See, you can know that your future is secure if you know the one who holds the future in his hands. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow and I know who holds my hand. And if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, do you understand that it is no accident that God has you here today. It wasn't a coincidence you showed up to this service. God has been pursuing you all of your life for you to come to that place where you come to the end of yourself and you surrender your life to him. And so if you're here in this room and you don't have the peace that we've talked about, if you don't have the confidence, if you're not sure of your future, then today you can have the assurance 
You know, the beautiful thing about my family being with me in Israel is that I knew that if anything bad happened, we would all be in heaven together. Not because of we are good, but because God is faithful. Because he died on the cross to save us. So if you're here and you've never trusted Christ, I wanna give you an opportunity. So I'd ask if you can, just not to move around and just every head bowed, every eyes closed. And if you're in this room and you're watching online and you're like, I've never given my life to Jesus. I've never surrendered. I, I, right now, pastor, my, my stomach is churning and there's bubbles and I, I don't understand what, what's going on. It's the Holy Spirit talking to you. And so if you're here today and you would like to trust Jesus as your savior. I'm not saying that you've got to go through a priest or that you've got to do some sort of ritual. I'm saying if you want to get right with God right now, you can. And so would you just pray this prayer with me? There's no magic incantation in this prayer. There's no magical words. It's really just an affirmation of the cry of your heart. And so if you're today wanting to trust Jesus as your savior, would you just pray this prayer with me? And if you're already a believer, then you pray for those who are going to pray. Would you pray this with me? Lord Jesus, I am broken. I cannot save myself. I am a sinner. But today, Jesus, I believe that you are God. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you rose from the dead. And so today, Jesus, I ask that you forgive me of my sins and that you save me. Be the Lord of my life. I surrender my life to you. Help me to live for you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Father God, I pray for those who may have trusted you today that they would have courage. Now, every head bowed, every eyes closed. This is just for me. If today you trusted Christ for the first time, this is a real moment with you and God. I want you to do something courageous and I don't often have you do this, but this is just for me. I'm the only one looking. If you just prayed to trust Christ as your savior, would you just raise your hand as high as you know how to raise it? I see you. I see you. Just raise it as high as you can. I want it to just so God, so everybody in heaven can see it. Raise your hand. I see you. I see you. Just keep it up. I see you. I see you. I see you all over this room. Church family, let's praise God for them. Amen. Now, those of you who just raised your hand, stay, let's stay praying now. If you raised your hand, I want you to ask that God will give you the courage to make it known. Father, I pray that you will give those who raised their hand the courage to make it known, either by filling out the card or going to see a counselor up in the front or going to the, one of our booths and saying, I trusted Jesus as my Savior. That God, I pray that those people would just say publicly, I am your child. And God, there are those who maybe wanted to raise their hand, but they didn't. God, give them the grace to do that. And thank you, Jesus, for, for grace. Help us to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's sing like we're gonna sing in heaven with all that we got, that we trust in God.